0: This episode of Redder Dead is sponsored by Book Riot's Read Harder 2020 Challenge. Book Riot's annual challenge is back. Once again, Read Harder 2020 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will hopefully help you discover amazing books you wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Read historical fiction that's not about World War II, a retelling of a classic or fairy tale, horror from indie presses, and more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizing for those who complete the challenge with a bonus prize this year.
1: Welcome to Red or Dead, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about the world of mysteries and thrillers. This is episode 72, and we are recording on Tuesday, February 25th. I'm Katie McLean Horner, along with Rincy Abraham, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Hi, Katie. Hi, Rincy. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I am good. I am actually, I am preparing to drive to Nashville tomorrow morning for a library conference. Fun! And take a wild guess of it, see if I've packed yet,
0: <laughs> well, uh what time are you leaving tomorrow? <laughs>
1: uh nine a m
0: okay, okay, um,
1: and thankfully, it's I am only driving myself. I am not trying to catch a plane. I am not responsible for anyone else. So technically, I can leave whenever I want. Mm-hmm. but my goal is to get there in about. The regular eight hour time span that it should take to get from the Chicago area to Nashville, um, and I want to get there in a reasonable time for dinner, right? um, but we'll but yeah, so like immediately after we finish recording, I am gonna have to go back. <laughs>
0: I hope it doesn't snow as much as they're saying it's going to then if you have to drive through all of this.
1: (laughs) Well, that's what, you know, I have, I've kind of been sending up mental signals to whoever or whatever is controlling the weather. I'm like, if you can just get me out of Illinois, that would be great. However, I do, I have noticed that the forecasts like a couple days ago, They were predicting like doomsday apocalyptic, we're gonna get a foot of snow over the course of two days. And now it's like eh, few inches maybe. So I'm not as worried as I was a few days ago, but ideally I would like to avoid as much snow as possible.
0: Yeah, I don't know if this is like a new phenomenon or what, but I feel like especially this winter, the weather people have been extremely doomsday about all of the snow that we theoretically are we're supposed to get and then by the time it's like the day that it's supposed to snow they're like yeah one to three inches
1: (laughs) yeah i i'm like i keep i keep hearing about you know like was it south carolina that just got like a couple inches of snow and everyone's just totally unprepared because of south carolina like i kind of feel like that's what's happening here except it's chicago and we know what winter is like and we have salt and everyone just needs to calm down
0: well i I mean, it's mostly because, like, they keep saying, like, it's going to snow, like, six inches, which is something to be concerned about. But oh, then yeah. it never actually does. No. So.
1: <laughs> I'm thinking, like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to shovel my car out. Right. I'm going to, like, oh, gosh, is work going to be closed? Like, all of this stuff. And, like, every time they, the, like, the day arrives, like, oh, we're supposed to get snow, I peek out the window. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I can still see the grass. Come on now. <laughs> Like, if I'm going to panic, I at least want to panic over something legitimate.
0: <laughs> Honestly, though. But I'm happy to say that I'm glad that I haven't had to shuffle too many times this year, at least.
1: Yes. No, I am grateful for that. And considering I had my fall in November where I whacked my head on a patch of ice, um, I am very glad that it, hasn't, that it hasn't been as snowy as they've predicted. But that little part of me is going like, oh, God, this is going to be bad. <laughs> So, I'm just like, "Okay, oh, can we just get to fifty degrees and stay there?
0: Yeah, for real, almost we're almost there. I
1: know it was fifty degrees on Sunday, and it yeah, was really nice.
0: It was very nice, but it's okay, it's almost March, which means it's almost April, which means it's almost summer
1: <laughs> i love- I love that logic i will i will I will go with that. It's a very hopeful logic
0: <laughs> well, on that note um. <laughs> I have our first sponsor for the episode and that is William Morrow Paperbacks who are the publisher of The Lucky One by Laurie Rader Day. Most people who go missing are never found, but Alice was the lucky one. So this book is from the author of Edgar Award nominated author, I said that twice, Under a Dark Sky, um with who is coming out with a new unforgettable and chilling story about a young woman who recognizes the man who kidnapped her as a child, setting off a search for justice and into danger. Twisting and compulsively readable, the lucky one explores the lies we tell ourselves to feel safe. Um, this is a new psychological thriller that explores society's ongoing fascinations with cold crimes and unsolved mysteries. And it's perfect for fans of these true crime podcasts and shows like. Like My Favorite Murder, Serial, and Dirty John, which I know that plenty of the people who are listening to this are fans of. Um, So if this sounds interesting to you, be sure to pick up The Lucky One by Lori Rader Day. And we thank William Morrow Paperbacks for sponsoring this episode.
1: All right. Uh, well, welcome to all of our lovely listeners, whether it's your first time or you're a long time listener, we're delighted to have you. Uh, we talk about mysteries and suspense and thrillers and true crime and anything and everything in between on this show. And if you are a regular listener of the show, you know that this is the point where we always put out a call for uh, episode suggestions from our, from our listening audience. We take a lot of these suggestions and use them to come up with new episode ideas for uh, future episodes. They're really great in helping us find new, uh, find new things to talk about, find things that we know at least some people will be interested in hearing about since they're the ones who suggested it. And yeah, it's just, it's really helped us kind of broaden what we, what we think about and talk about for the show. And it can be anything from there's a subgenre that we haven't talked about much that you would be interested in hearing more about. Um, We've gotten recommended reading requests like, oh, if I like this particular author, can you recommend any other books similar to that author? It can be stuff about an adaptation that's that's coming out something just generally newsworthy in the world of mystery and suspense and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, we love hearing from all of you. So if you have any ideas, um, please feel free to contact us. We'll have our contact information at the end of the show, but we always like to get, um, put that invitation out at the beginning and get people thinking and, um, hopefully reaching out to us. So we love hearing from all of you and thank you to everyone who has contacted us so far. With that, I'm going to just go ahead and jump right into our news segment. Um, so I have, um, some adaptation news that I'm really, I'm curious and also really excited about. Um, Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne are starring in the film adaptation of the true crime book, uh, The Good Nurse, A True Story of Medicine, Madness and Murder by Charles Graber. And this book, I'm sure I mentioned it either last episode or the episode before. I am actually in the middle of re- re-reading this book right now. Um, So when this news popped, I was like, oh, this is, this is, this fits perfectly. Um, it's, the book is really interesting. It's, um, about a male nurse who in the, in the nineties and early two thousands went from like, not, went through like nine or ten different hospitals over the course of like a couple of decades. And he ended up killing hundreds of patients by dosing them with incorrect medicine and just kind of like watching the mayhem unfold. And the book not only looks at the crimes and the investigation, but it also looked at how the hospitals worked to cover up what was happening, because most of the places he worked at had an idea, like if they didn't know for sure he was doing this, they had a pretty good idea that something really really bad was going on. So before it got worse, a lot of them told him, like, hey, if you resign now, like, we know what you're doing. But if you resign now, we'll give you a decent reference. And we'll just kind of make this go away. So basically, they like every hospital made it someone else's problem. And so he was innate, he was basically allowed to keep going and keep doing this over the course of two decades, which is just as horrifying as the murders, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it's a really well written book. It's really good on audio. And now it's going to be a film adaptation. So Eddie Redmayne is going to be playing, um, Charlie Cullen, who is the, uh, angel of death nurse as, uh, those types of criminals are, are known um which i've seen pictures of the real charlie cullen i can't quite see it with eddie redmayne but i love him as an actor um and i'm just really excited that they're adapting this um so we'll we'll have a link to this and all the other news items in the show notes um but you can definitely take a look at that um for more information Another um, adaptation bit is um, Graham Moore's latest novel, The Holdout, which came out a couple of weeks ago. It's brand spanking new. It's a legal thriller, and it has already been optioned for a Hulu series. So there's not a ton of information about it, um, just kind of announcing that it that it is likely going to be a series. But if you've read the book already and think that it would make a great adaptation, well, congratulations, you were right. Some other people thought so as well. Um, and then finally, this isn't an adaptation, uh, bit, but it's super interesting. Um, so last year, I'm like towards the beginning of the year, I think, Hallie Rubenhold published a nonfiction book called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper that doesn't focus on the crimes of Jack the Ripper, but rather the lives of the women he killed, what their lives were like before they became before they were linked to his, essentially. And she's really um, been pushing for people to think about these women as people, not just... You know, basically dead bodies in a horrific crime spree. She said there's a lot more humanity to them than they've been given over the, over the centuries. And she is actually planning a mural in Whitechapel in London to celebrate the lives of these women. Um, and of course, Whitechapel is where the murders were committed. Um, there's, are a lot of, Jack the Ripper tours that go through there in London. Um, they're extremely popular. It's just kind of become like embedded in our cultural psyche, like the crimes of Jack the Ripper. And so she's trying to plan a very public work of art to celebrate these women as people and not just victims of this killer, which is really, really cool. Um, and I will be really interested to see what it looks like when it's finished.
0: So our last two pieces of news are not really quite like news news in the general sense, but they're more just recent links that uh, we found that we thought would be of interest to our listeners. Uh The first one is about cozy mysteries and specifically like TV cozy mysteries. This is a geek.com sort of like little feature that talks about kind of why cozy mysteries on tv are so popular and it gives a little bit of history about the genre in terms of books but then it also just talks about how it started becoming a popular tv genre and then towards the end of the article there are a bunch of different recommendations of different types of cozy mysteries so if you are someone who really enjoys that tv genre this would be probably a really great article to check out to see if there are some ones out there that uh, you might be it maybe haven't heard of yet or maybe forgot about and have been wanting to check out. Um, Obviously, there are a bunch of different places you can watch these. And they give like the recommendations, I think, for like U.S. viewers for if you're wanting to watch these because a lot of like cozy mystery shows tend to be like – uk based or like in, from australia or new zealand and things like that and so obviously those can be a little bit tougher to get a hold of here in the states and so it gives some recommendations of different websites that also um, have a lot of these stored um, so we'll have a link to that but it's really great uh, list if you want to check out some new possibly to you cozy mystery tv shows and then the other thing I wanted to talk about is that Crime Writers of Color has put together this really great list of um black crime authors to read for Black History Month. Um And so this is actually like a really cool website and they have like a bunch of different mysteries up on there and different lists about like writers of color or crime writers of color as well like backlists as well as upcoming releases so obviously like here at book riot if you've been listening to us for a while you know that this is something that's very important to us and it's something that we've talked about a lot about how um underrepresented it's specifically the mystery genre can is often um and the fact that it is sometimes a struggle just to find books being published in the mystery genre that's by not white people. Um, so it's really great when that people are willing to like do the work and put these sort of lists together and put them all in one place to make it easier for everyone. And hopefully this will help give them some exposure, get all of us, you know, talking about these authors and maybe make publishing realize that they need to uh, do a little bit more in this area still.
1: All right. Um, well, that actually ties in really well with the main discussion we've got for this episode. But before we get to that, I have our second sponsor. That is Crooked River, which is the new Agent Pendergast novel from Preston and Child. And this book starts off with ordinary looking shoes that float in on the tide and wash up on a Florida beach, each one with a crudely severed human foot inside. Oh, they've hooked me already. <laughs> Um, so if you're familiar with this series, you're very familiar with FBI Special Agent Pendergast, who is really um, – he's considered kind of a modern-day Sherlock Holmes to a lot of reviewers – it, but he gets called away from his Florida vacation and reluctantly agrees to visit the crime scene, but is quickly drawn in by the incomprehensible puzzle. And an early pathology report only adds to a mystery. With an ocean, haha, see what they did there? With an ocean of possibilities confronting the investigation, no one is sure what happened or where the feat originated from. And they desperately need to know are the victims still alive? Um, so this series is a long-running series from Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. The series has been called consistently exciting, never predictable by the Associated Press. Washington Post has raved about these authors, saying there's nothing else like them. So if you are a fan of this series, or if you haven't read the series before, um, I think, th- I'm pretty sure this is a series that, for the most part, you can kind of, you can pick it up wherever and you can follow what's going along pretty quickly. I think they work pretty well as standalones. Um, but again, that is Crooked River, which is the new Agent Pendergast novel from Preston and Child. And we thank them very much for sponsoring this episode.
0: So for this episode, we're doing things a little bit differently in the sense that like we have a little bit of more kind of newsy thing to talk about. And then that'll sort of lead into the books that we read for this episode. Um, so if you weren't aware, at the end of January, there was like a little bit of controversy and like Twitter discussion going around this book called My Dark Vanessa, which was written by uh, Kate Elizabeth Russell. It was getting a lot of like publisher marketing and push behind it. Kate Elizabeth Russell supposedly got like a seven-figure deal um, from this book and things like that. So it was like one of those big publishing books that are coming out. And so this author, Wendy C. Ortiz, uh, wrote um, on Twitter in the middle of January talking about how there was a book coming out that was Basically sounding very similar to a memoir that she wrote called Excavation that was published back in 2014. And she talked about how there were a lot of like really like eerie similarities between the two books. And she started to wonder if, I don't know if she started to wonder or if people in general started to wonder if like Mark, my dark Vanessa like plagiarized some of it and things like that. You know, Twitter discussions can get. A little bit difficult to follow sometimes, um, but there is a really nice like vulture article that will sum up like basically everything that happened. And so it seemed like things were starting to escalate. And the way that it basically boils down to is, my dark Vanessa is a fictional story, but it's based partially in her own truth. And Russell also says that there she read a bunch of different books about abuse that she basically like took into account to help like flesh out her story and things like that I believe and basically just like talks about how like she didn't plagiarize the book or anything like that and Wendy C. Ortiz um, ends up writing an essay that's basically about how difficult it was for her to sell her own memoir excavation and even though these two books are so similar it seems like publishing is just like much more likely to praise and uplift and publish books when they are written by white women um, or white people in general. And yet when they're coming from authors of color, it doesn't seem like they're getting any sort of support. They're told that the air stories are not worthy or too difficult or, you know, it, it's not the right fit and things like that. And yeah, it just became like this really big discussion point on twitter and like i don't know there's no like this is like one of those situations where it's just like a really messy situation because there's no clear it's not like someone purposefully stole anyone's story from another but i think what ended up happening is like as it all played out the basic idea is just the fact that like there's still a significant threshold that authors of color have to meet in order to get published and It's not the same standard that other people, that generally white people are being held to. And in fact, when white people are telling certain stories, they're praised for it. Um, and when again, authors of color tell, try to tell those same stories, they're not praised for it. Um, a lot of this got compared to like the American dirt controversy that was happening as well. Um, but there are some really great points that like Wendy C. Ortiz was talking about in terms of like how you know, 80 plus percent of the publishing industry is white and it that ends up like trickling down into what stories get picked up and whose um, stories get uplifted and how, you know, certain people are excluded from conversations and when they try to like point out certain things, you know, their voices aren't listened to and things like that. And it was just like a really interesting thing to sort of like watch unfold. And it's part of the reason why we like took so long to talk about it is because like, it was so complicated and so complex. I think it needed the time to sort of resolve before you can even like talk about it in any sort of like intelligent way. If that makes sense. I don't know, Katie, <laughs> did I do a good job summarizing it? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yes, you did. No, the whole time I'm I'm like, I was just gonna be like, well, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. I know that some of yeah, I, the, the plagiarism claims, I, had, I did not follow the entire conversation. I kind of, kind of followed bits and pieces of it and read summary articles. Um, to my knowledge, I don't believe that Wendy Ortiz ever made plagiarism comments herself. She just said that she had people telling her, hey, there's this book that's coming out that sounds like it's a lot like yours, which she said that she was really – she agreed. She was like, yeah, it does. Um, she hasn't read the book. Um, I don't – but I think, like you said, her – Her biggest sticking point wasn't, wasn't that, oh, Kate Elizabeth Russell stole, um, or plagiarized from, uh, Wendy Ortiz's memoir. It was, hey, it was exactly like you said. The publishing industry is putting seven figures behind this book. And then in the essay that Wendy Ortiz wrote, which is actually published in Roxanne, was published in Roxanne Gay's magazine. um, I I did read that. And it's really interesting because she talks about the exact responses that she would get from agents and publishers when she was, when she was trying to get her book published. And they were saying, you know, your writing is really excellent. You know, it's really hard hitting. But, there is always a but, and it's, and it's kind of, and a lot of the comments were along the lines of, well, we already have, we already have a Latinx author, and we don't think we can, you know, adequately promote two books, or two different Latinx authors, which of course, as we know, is ridiculous, because how many, how many white-centric World War II historical fiction novels are being published in a given month? And there's no, they have no problem promoting those, which we, we all know is all kinds of ridiculous. But anyway, um, but so she was getting encouragement in that they're saying your writing is really good, but it's not good enough. And like you were saying, there's this barrier that authors of color have to meet and it's and while it seems as though the publishing industry is getting a little bit better in terms of diversifying the authors that they represent and the books that they promote it's far from being a solved problem the publishing industry is still enormously white um back in, oh, gosh, was that 2015, maybe, when Lee and Lowe Publishers did a survey of the publishing industry to kind of break down the demographics of who works in publishing. And that's where we get the, um, where a lot of the statistics come from, like, publishing is like 85% white, and, you know, it's predominantly female, there are very few um, openly LGBTQ people in the publishing industry, very few, very few people with with a disability that work in the publishing industry uh very few people people of color that's where we get those statistics from and they did they've been putting out the results of this survey every year and 5 years later they're like not much has changed um and that really affects the books the types of books that that publishing houses will pick up and it also affects the books that get promoted because for a lot of publishers they're going to just subconsciously they're going to be drawn towards the books that reflect them the most. And it's going to be harder for them to see themselves in books written by an author who comes from a different background or has a different experience or perspectives than the public than the person in the publishing house might. Um, So it it is a complicated issue. Um, And yeah, like Rincy said, this was something that we didn't want to just kind of write off as another news item, you know, oh, you know, you know this happened like this is a real thing that that's happening um so with that and then combined like she said with american dirt which is just ongoing oh my lord every every week there's like new new developments and new new things happening around that that controversy um but yeah like this isn't a case of a white author you know telling the story of some of a person of color while another person of color gets rejected for telling their own story. Um, it's not that situation like it is with American Dirt. It's more of an example of how the publishing industry operates. Um, so with that, and with the whole American Dirt thing that's been happening, um, we uh, each picked, Rinsey and I each picked a book by a Latinx author, um, we an own voices novel, and... Uh, that we decided that we wanted to talk about those for this episode. So Rinsey, why don't you jump in? Because I have I am not familiar at all with this author or this book. So this will be brand new for me.
0: Yeah, so I had a lot of fun sort of doing research for this because I kind of wanted to find someone who we haven't talked about before. um, And preferably that I hadn't really like had on my radar before. And so this book, was originally published in the 90s, which is like part of the reason why I, like neither of us probably paid very close attention to this author prior to this point. Um, and so I was like, kind of excited when I found it because I was like, oh, this is something that it's, there's a good chance that a lot of people who are listening to us right now have never heard of either. Um, so the book that I read is called Bloody Waters by Carolina Garcia Aguilera. Um, it's the first book in the Lupe Solano series. And I believe that there are like six or seven books out in this series. And the most recent one was published in like 2010. This one came out in like the mid 90s. So, you know, this is an author who has gone, done a decent amount of like publishing within the mystery world, which is great. Um, the author herself is was born in Cuba and then she emigrated to the United States in the 1960s. Um, and so the main character of this uh story and like the main character or all of the characters basically in this story are of like Cuban descent, either from Cuba or living in Cuba or living in Florida. Um the story is set in Miami and you are following Lupe Solano, who is a young woman and a private eye. Um, and this family is like full of like great little cuban specific details um her sister is a nun um her father and her mother um emigrated over to the united states and uh ended up like Doing very well for themselves. So they live in a very wealthy part of Miami. Um, and like I said, she, uh, Lupe currently works as a private eye. Um, she has like the secretary named Leonardo, who is also her cousin and who really loves bodybuilding. And so they've like turned part of their office into a gym so he can work out while at work. It's really fun um so anyways the mystery in this book is um she gets hired by this couple who have adopted a girl um and the adoption was basically done like illegally uh the couple couldn't have like A child and they wanted they were getting like a little bit older and so they kind of like rushed through things and this lawyer basically said like if you pay me this amount of money i can you know get you a baby (laughs) which sounds really crazy but like the way that he always explained it is like it's from these girls who come from like Cuban family who are of Cuban descent. And so they don't like their families don't want them like word to get out that they were pregnant and got pregnant outside of marriage and stuff like that. So they want to like give away the baby and they would prefer to give it away to, you know, another Cuban family who they know will like raise the child well and stuff like that. And so um this couple has illegally adopted a baby and they find out that their child has this like disease. And the only way that um the disease has been known to like get cured and things like that is like to get a bone marrow transplant from their the child's biological mother so the couple hires Lupe to try to find out who this child's biological mother is because since all this was done you know under the radar and all of this stuff they've never had any idea where this child came from And so, originally, it seems like a pretty straightforward, you know, investigation. The more Lupe starts looking into things, the more shady this whole situation seems to end up turning out. And it gets, like, significantly more and more dangerous as it goes on, all while this child's life is kind of on the line. And she doesn't have, like, a lot of time to waste to find this woman. Um. So, like I said this is a really great and really fun mystery. It very much is like of the 90s. So if you read a lot of like mysteries and you specifically have read a lot of mysteries from the 90s, this will feel very familiar to you. Um, but also like if you're reading this in the with a modern lens, it does feel a little bit dated but that I don't mind it. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is the fact that like the Cuban culture and all of that is really infused in everything about this story. Um, I am someone who has apparently completely forgotten what our relationship as a country was like with Cuba in the 90s. Um, And like reading this book kind of like transplanted me back into that period where you know our relationship wasn't great. Um, We didn't do a lot of communicating with people from that country. We had such strained relations with that country for so long. Um, Obviously, like Fidel Castro is still alive and keeping a tight rein on things. And so the people who are left in that country or the people who are choosing to live in that country, things like that, uh, have a significantly more difficult life than the people who have immigrated to the United States. And all of that is brought up in this book as well. Um, So it's kind of a really good book in the sense of it also like teaches you a lot about Cuban culture and what it's like to um, you know be of Cuban descent to living in the United States as well as like knowing what's going on in Cuba and that like sort of strain and stress and that sort of like worry that you always had in the back of your mind about things that could have potentially happened in Cuba. All of that is like brought up while also like integrating this like really fun mystery. Lupe Solano is a really just like fun private eye. She's you know, not married, and she like likes to you know have fun with her life and things like that, and so you see all of that in the story um but she also obviously like really cares about this case, and you see like the lengths that she's willing to go through um to uh be able to find this woman and to be able to save this girl's life. I think that if you're someone who just like enjoys like those like mid 90s types of mystery series this is definitely a good one to check out um so again the first book in the series is called Bloody Waters and it's by Carolina Carolina Garcia Aguilera
1: yeah that's i i think that's so interesting that you found that you found a book written in the 90s um i mean the 90s was not that long ago but it's i don't know like especially when we talk about the whiteness of publishing you don't think like as difficult as it is for people of color to get published now, it was even harder a couple decades ago. So I'm I'm really interested or I think it that's so cool that you that you found this book. Um so mine, I mean <laughs> is very opposite in that sense in that it was just published a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, but my book that I picked was Untamed Shore by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. And she has written, she's known for her um, fantasy um, or magical realism type of books. Um, last year, she wrote Gods of Jade and Shadow, which has one of the most gorgeous book covers I've ever seen. Um, so, But this is her first uh, thriller, and it's not speculative at all. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons why I picked up this book is because it's got such a cool cover. It's got a really cool stylistic, like, great white shark on the front. And even though the sharks don't factor in strongly with the plot, this is not a shark thriller, um, it was just such a cool cover that I was like, you know what, I'm going to have to read this. So, um, so yeah, I read this one. And it takes place in 1979 in Mexico, um, in Baja, California. Um, the main character is Viridiana and she's 18, um, uh, 18 or 19 and she's kind of struggling. She's, her town is tiny. She feels like she's going to be trapped here for the rest of her life, but she has, you know, these dreams of moving away and either making it big. Like she has like these Hollywood type dreams. Um, or at least escaping from where she grew up and everyone has kind of been like trapped. Like, once you're once you're kind of born in this town, you either leave and never come back, or you're stuck there for the rest of your life. So she's really struggling with restlessness, with her family's and her community's expectations of her, that she get married young, that she settle down, have a family, uh, which she really does not want to do. She broke up with her boyfriend of two years, who she didn't even really like that much in the first place, because she you know, she's like, I want something more. And her family is like, No, you need to you need to be with him, like, just settle down, you've got him, you know, and that'll be good enough. But then there's um, excitement brought into her life when this wealthy, um, this, there are three wealthy Americans that come in, and they rent out this house, there's, there's someone who like, owns, a, owns like, this really nice house, kind of, like, on the edge of town by the by the beach. And they rent it out, and they end up hiring Vir- Viridiana to be their kind of translator. Um, She ends up being a transcriber for one of the people in the group, whose name is Ambrose, and he's writing a book, and so he wants her to take notes. He's going to dictate to her, and then she kind of helps them with stuff around the house. She kind of is basically an assistant to the group. And she is just becomes enamored with them. Um, Ambrose is, is kind of, um, he's kind of a jerk. She's not real interested in him, but the other two people, they are much younger. They're glamorous. They're gorgeous. And one of them, of course, is a guy. Um, uh, Daisy and Gregory. That, those are their names. So uh, Viridiana, she just kind of, like, falls head over heels in love slash lust with Gregory. He's, like, ten years older than her, but he's gorgeous. Daisy is glamorous, and there's something about her, even though she seems kind of cruel. She um, she also has a very magnetic uh, quality to her. And so, the as you can imagine, this being a thriller, these people are... are As it, as you come to find out, not who they say they are. And there's lots of shady stuff going on with these people. Um, and of course, that's not giving anything away. That's kind of really like, okay, yeah, I figured where that was, was happening. Um, yeah, with this book, this is a much, this is a quieter kind of thriller. Like, it's really interesting. It's a page turner in that sense, but it's not plot based, really. It's really a coming of age story. And the story is moved along by, uh how viridiana how she interacts with these people and the choices that she makes and how she kind of gets pulled into their sketchiness and how what she has to do to try and break herself free um but yeah it's really really interesting um someone compared it to um Someone said the Great Gatsby meets Night of the Iguana. Um, the Great Gatsby. Um, I'm not familiar with Night of the Iguana. The Great Gatsby. I can kind. I can definitely see. It's like on the surface you have these beautiful, glamorous people, but as you you know, as you get to know them and as you kind of d- dig into their character, you realize that there's it is not as you know as gorgeous and flawless as it seems on the surface um but it's so beautifully written like you she has such a strong sense of place like you feel like you are there um like on the beach you feel the heat you feel the wind um you can see the fishermen um that go that go fishing for sharks and so they you know, that, that's part of the economy there. They sell, you know, shark meat for food. They sell the teeth and the jaws as either souvenirs or um, they use, you know, they use all the different parts of the shark. And so the sharks kind of come up as this recurring motif that's really, really interesting. But yeah, I really liked it. It's It's such an interesting character study. And I think about, and I can't remember... I can't remember if it was going back if it was Wendy Ortiz who said this that she heard this from other agents or if it was other Latinx authors that said they've heard similar things. I'm sure this is not the first time it's happened, but they've apparently something that a lot of Latinx authors hear is that, oh, they don't, you know, readers don't want books that are set in Mexico or readers don't want books that are set in Latin America or whatever the case may be. But it's like, oh, they want books that are either set in the United States or England. Otherwise, they can't relate. And it's it's ridiculous. Um This book was fantastic. And she, you can tell even though i know as a white reader i did not pick up on all of the little nuances in how she describes the culture they're there and i feel them and so i can you know i i maybe can't appreciate all of it but i appreciate the effort that went into creating this world and it it feels so real um i i really enjoyed this book and yeah the like i said the cover is fantastic if nothing else judge the book by the cover pick it up read it i think you will really like it um again that is untamed shore by sylvia moreno garcia
0: all right so if you have any recommendations of mysteries written by latinx authors feel free to send them our way we always love hearing about uh, which books you guys have been enjoying especially if they're by authors that we haven't heard of before so feel free to tweet at us send us an email whatever you prefer all right. So I have our new releases for this episode. Um, first up, I have Trouble is What I Do by Walter Mosley. This is the sixth book in the Leonid McGill series. Um, so in this book, you are following uh, Philip Catfish Worry, who is a 92-year-old Mississippi bluesman who needs Leonid's help. Uh, he's asking him to deliver a letter revealing the Black lineage of a wealthy heiress and her corrupt father. And so So, you know, loving the opportunity to be able to do this simple favor while shocking the elite is too much for Leonid to resist. So obviously he takes it up. But when a famed and feared assassin puts a hit on catfish, Leonid has no choice but to confront the ghost of his own felonist past. Working to protect his client and his own family, Leonid must reach the heiress on the eve of her wedding before her powerful father kills those who hold their family's secret. So I don't think I need to explain who Walton Mosley is. You know, Edgar Award winner. We're all big fans of his. This is the latest book in his Leonid McGill series again, um, and that is called Trouble is What I Do. Also out already is a new true crime and nonfiction book called Yellow Bird, Oil Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country by Sierra Crane Murdoch. And I believe we mentioned this one in our most anticipated episode. Um, this is a true story of a murder that happened on an Indian reservation. Um, so when Lisa Yellowbird was released from prison in two thousand and nine, she found that her home, the Fort Berthal Indian Reservation in North Dakota, was transformed by the back end oil boom. And in her absence, the landscape had been altered beyond recognition. Um, her tribal government has been swayed by corporate interests, and her community has been burdened by a surge in violence and addiction. Three years later, when Lisa learned that a young white oil worker, Christopher Casey Clark, had disappeared from his reservation work site, she became particularly concerned because no one knew where Clark had gone and few people were trying to look for him. So uh, Yellowbird traces... Lisa steps as she obsessively hunts for clues to uh, Clark's disappearance, and she navigates these two worlds, uh, one of her own tribe that's been changed by this newfound wealth and those of the not-native oilmen, who are down in their luck and have come to find work on the heels of this in the midst of an economic recession. And so this pursuit of Clark also becomes a pursuit of redemption as Lisa atones for her own crimes and reckons with generations of trauma. Um, So this book is getting a whole lot of praise. It's on a lot of people's most anticipated lists and obviously besides our own. Um, So if you are a fan of true crime stories, I think that if you are a fan of like Killers of the Flower Moon and things like that, uh, this is definitely a book that should be on your radar. And again, that's called Yellow Bird, Oil, Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country by Sierra Crane Murdoch. And then coming out next week is a book that sounds like a lot of fun, and that is called Eight Perfect Murders by Peter Swanson. Um, so in this book, you are following bookseller and mystery aficionado Malcolm Kershaw, who has compiled a list of what he considers the genre's most unsolvable murders which he has titled eight perfect murders and he's chosen from a bunch of different like classic murders like agatha christie's abc murders and patricia Highsmith's strangers on a train etc uh Suddenly the FBI comes knocking on his door looking for information about a series of unsolved murders that look eerily similar to the killings on Mal's list. And the FBI agent isn't the only one who is interested. Uh, the killer is out there watching every, uh, watching Mal's every move and is knows a lot more about Mal, um, including secrets that he's never told anyone, even his recently deceased wife. So to protect himself, Mal starts looking into it and suddenly sees killers and everyone around him. But as things start to escalate, Mal finds himself in a lot of trouble. Um, So this sounds like a really fun book that would be great for people who love mysteries, which, again, is probably everyone listening to this podcast. So that is called Eight Perfect Murders by Peter Swanson. And then the final one I wanted to mention is called The Sea of Lost Girls by Carol Goodman. Um, this is a more like slow burn psychological thriller set in a prestigious prep school. So Tess has worked hard to keep her past buried where it belongs. And now she's the wife to a respected professor at an elite boarding school where she also teaches. Her 17 year old son, Rudy, who has had like dark moods and complicated behavior is starting to thrive. He has a lead role in the school play and a smart and ambitious girlfriend. And Tess not tries not to think about the mistakes that she made 18 years ago. And mostly she succeeds. But then one morning, she gets a text at 2.50 a.m. It's Rudy asking for help. And when Tess picks him up, she finds him drenched and shivering with a dark stain on his sweatshirt. Four hours later, Tess gets a phone call from the headmistress at the school saying that Rudy's girlfriend has been found dead on the beach, not far from where Tess found Rudy just hours before. As the investigation into the death escalates, Tess finds her family attacked on all sides and what first seems like a tragic accident is turning into something far more sinister and not only is obviously Tess's son a suspect, but her husband is a person of interest too. But Lila's death isn't the first blemish on this private school's record, and the more Tess learns about Haywood's fabled history, the more she realizes that not all skeletons will stay safely locked in the closet. Um, And again, that one is called The Sea of Lost Girls by Carol Goodman. Um, And then finally, a quick uh, just sort of highlighted mention, Egg Drop Dead by Vivian Chen is out now. This is the fifth book in the Noodle Shop Mystery series which um, I read when it first came out and I really enjoyed. I've not been good about keeping up with the series but if you are a fan of Cozy Mysteries this is definitely one that you should be checking out or if you've been like keeping up with the series much better than I have the fifth one is out now.
1: Alright, well, I don't think I can give you too much of a break from all that talking, because I know we talk about what we are currently finishing and starting, and I, other than um, Untamed Shore, I haven't really finished much that is mystery-slash-suspense-related. But I did pick up Your House Will Pay by Steph Cha. I won't do a synopsis of it because we've talked about it multiple times. I know you've read it and really enjoyed it. I have mentioned that I've been planning on reading it um, several times. And I finally have it It is on my stack of library books. And um, so I'm only a few pages into it, but it's extraordinarily well written. And I am probably going to pack that in my in my bag for nashville uh once i once we finish recording and i can get to packing i will put that book in there and probably one or two other mysteries because you can never have too many books when you go traveling
0: yeah it's a great book it's a good one to take along with you um so i also don't have a whole lot to talk about here because besides bloody waters i have not finished a single book since we last recorded i'm in a little bit of a slump yeah (laughs) yeah Um, So uh, I just wanted to say that a book I'll potentially be picking up is The Majesties* by Tiffany Sow, which again is another book that I mentioned in the uh, most anticipated episode that we did. Uh, I put a hold on this at the library and my hold has come in. So hopefully this will be the book that breaks my slump.
1: (laughs) And that book also has an amazing cover. So just saying.
0: Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, just that alone. Again, they say don't judge books by their cover, but these are some great covers they're coming out with
1: oh yeah absolutely judge these books by their covers
0: all right, and that is our show. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. For show notes, you can head over to bookriot.comslash slash listen. If you enjoy the podcast, definitely leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so that way other people can discover us. Um, and if you want to send us an email with feedback or show suggestions, you can find us at dead at bookriot.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Rincey
1: And I'm on Twitter at KT underscore library lady and we will talk to you guys next time bye bye